God of Adam, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God of the nation of Israel. And God of Riverbend Community Church, we call on you today. Thank you for being our God. Thank you for being our Savior. Thank you, as we were reminded this morning in the opening of our service, that you are a God full of grace and truth. Thank you that we find salvation. Thank you that we find mercy and grace and love in you. Lord, thank you that you do what we cannot do. Lord, we thank you that you are the Father of lights. And all good things come from you, Lord. Thank you that you are perfect in all of your ways. You make no mistakes. And you're beautiful at all times, Lord. Thank you for dwelling among us, Lord. Allowing us to be your people. Not abandoning us to our own sin, Lord. Thank you that you are a shield around us. You are a high tower in which we run to in the time of need. Thank you that you have made us objects of your love, though we don't deserve it. That thought alone overwhelms us, Father, that you would love us from the foundations of the world, despite our sinful behavior, despite our depravity that we were birthed in. You have made us your objects of love. Thank you that you are our Abba Father, the one we cry to, the one we come to, the one we crawl up next to. And yet, Lord, we revere you in your immaculate holiness and all your glory. We ask that you would unite our hearts in these truths today that we study in scriptures, that we learn of you. Help us understand the gospel better today. Help us understand this great, finished, perfect work you've done for us, Lord. May it cause us to love one another, serve one another in this body, all for your glory. We pray that you would grow all ages, from the youngest here to the elderly, that each and every one would be convicted of sin, denounce that, Turn to the cross yet again and thank you that you've forgiven us for those things. Cause us to grow more and more in your image. Bring us to our knees about sin of gossip or unforgiving hearts, Lord. Show us in this text, Lord, that you give us the power and authority to not live that way. Prepare our hearts and minds for your word today. May this not be a lost hour in our life. May your word fall upon us. May it pierce our hearts, Lord. May it capture us in a unique way. And we pray that this would all be done for your glory. We ask, Lord, that you would show kindness and mercy to the sick. Those who could not be with us. Show them your love, Lord. Remind them of your truth. Cause them to run to, your, run to you, Lord, in times of need. Be with those who are in the hospital even as we speak. Those who cannot be here, Lord, because of the fallenness of man as we struggle in these human bodies. 
Give them grace and mercy. We pray for our missionaries around the world, Lord. Thank you for them. Thank you for those that were raised up as nationals in their country, and thank you for those that were sent from America. May both groups cling to the gospel and the all-sufficient word of God for all of their instruction and teaching, and that many souls from every tribe, tongue, language would be brought to you, Lord. And Father, we would pray the same here, that you would save the lost, those that are among us that truly don't know you, that you would awaken them, Lord, to your glory and grace and bring them to saving faith. We pray for those that are saved in this room or those hearing this message, Lord, that we would not say the same. You would continue us on in this great sanctifying work of becoming more like your son. Cause us to be humble like him. Cause us to love you like he did. Cause us to be more like him. We ask you to do this for your glory, Lord, and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm grateful for the opportunity to preach the book of Mark. It has really encouraged me. Each and every week I turn to the passage and I sometimes know the text and there's other times I don't. I look at the text and I go, I don't know what this means, Lord. (laughs) And then as we begin to study, God begins to open the truth of the word of God and begin to understand these great truths that have been laid down from ages past for us to study and know. As we think about this text, it is brief. It is a short passage that I want to deal with today. But the Lord wants to remind his disciples and us of his goodness. He wants to let us know that we have been granted access to him. And in several areas, in in faith, in prayer and forgiveness. This lesson, as you look at this lesson and think about the situation that's going on there, this lesson takes place most likely on Wednesday morning, two days before the cross. It is Wednesday morning of Passion Week. And the Lord and his disciples are walking from Bethany to Jerusalem. The day before, Jesus started the day very similar. He came, though, and he came to this point, and he cursed this fig tree we looked at last week, and then he went on his way to cleanse the temple. Jesus clearly wanted his disciples to recognize the dangers of outward living. Remember, we spoke about that tree that looked like it was fruitful, but in closer inspection, it was unproductive. But why would Jesus insert When you look at this little text that Mike read for us, why would he insert this text here, this this lesson here, on faith and prayer and forgiveness at this point? And use a dead fig tree. Why would he do this at this point? Well, in short, I want you to understand that Jesus' days are now limited on this earth. The God-man, the Lord Jesus Christ, is going to die in the next two days. He will be resurrected and he'll return to heaven. He will no longer be physically present with these men. He will not be there with them any longer. Their God-given faith would now drive them to prayer and live lives that were fruitful for the glory of God. 
I see our Lord preparing them. Up to now, he has met every need. There was no need for prayer. He was right there with them. He walked with them. He took care of them. He provided for them. He even protected them. And he even fed them. But in 48 hours, he will not be with them anymore. I think all of this teaching here is to help them that changes were coming. His physical presence would not be with them. They were going to be the first, think about this, the first of many who would believe in Jesus that you could not no longer see. The disciples are going to blaze a trail for us that we'll follow behind them and that we'll believe in a Lord Jesus we have not seen. I think this struck Peter greatly. I think these disciples and all true believers that follow, we become completely dependent on a God and a Savior we cannot see. Peter must have been overwhelmed by this truth. He writes in 1 Peter chapter 1, 8, and although you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, you believe in him. And you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. So there is this monumental change that's coming. The disciples need to understand that the Lord Jesus Christ would sustain them through a God-given faith, through a relationship of prayer, with ability to forgive because they had been forgiven. And he's going to use this fig tree to teach this lesson. We want to answer three questions and then look at a reminder of the blessing of the birth of Christ. Question one we'll look at. Does your faith in Christ strengthen your belief in God? There's a lot of Jesus people out there. Does your faith in Jesus, does your faith in Christ strengthen your faith in the power and the promises of God? Does your prayer life reflect that? And does your faith promote prayer? And, and forgiveness. I think that's what he is preparing to be. Let's look at the first thought here together. Number one, does your faith in Christ strengthen your belief in God? Look at verse 20 through 22 with me. And as they were passing by in the morning, they saw a fig tree withered from its roots up. Being reminded, Peter said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered saying to them, have faith in God. Only Matthew and Mark record this part of the lesson. And Mark notes that it's the next morning, so we believe this is Wednesday morning coming in as the disciples are coming with Jesus back into the city. They're traveling from Bethany back from Jerusalem. And clearly, Jesus and his disciples are on the exact same road they were on the previous morning because here's this withered tree. Luke tells us that people came out to him very early, so this is early morning again. This seems to be Jesus' habit, that he arrives and gets up early and moves into the city. But notice in verse 20, they said, they saw, the Bible says, they saw the fig tree withered up from its roots. When you hear that, the, the condition of the tree is obvious, isn't it? <laughs> they, they, they walk upon it, and they come up upon it, and there it is. It's, it's dead, 
the, the morning before, it was full of leaves. The Bible says it had plenty of foolish on it. It looked like a great tree that would have fruit on it, and yet it was empty of any product. And this morning, as they arrive, notice the Bible says it was dead from its roots. What a statement. I don't know if you've ever cut a tree down lately, but usually overnight, you cannot maybe tell that they're dead. It takes a few days. Clearly, this was supernatural. This thing was dead, and it was dead from its roots, so it had a look to it. They knew it was dead, not just from a few withered leaves, but the whole tree was dead. There was nothing good in it. Notice verse 21. Being reminded, Peter said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree which you cursed has withered. Only Mark records this of Peter's expression. It's, it's, in, in the Greek, it's, it's a strong expression of surprise. Mark records this. Peter was surprised. He looked at this and said, look, Rabbi, look at this tree. I would imagine Peter must have preached this many times and, and Mark is inspired by God to record this and this must have been a sermon point of Peter's talking about the reference to this tree. Notice Peter connects the condition of the tree with the words of Jesus. This is the tree that you cursed with your own words. He's recognizing that. And his astonishment is recognizing that this condition of this thing is not ordinary. This is not what happens when trees die. They don't die and then you come up the next day and they're dead, gone, destroyed, basically, from the roots up. He's astonished. And so he says, Rabbi, look. I thought that was quite comical. Jesus, look. Uh, Yeah, I did that yesterday. And I thought about this, and, 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 and we think about both nature and in life, in grace, fruitlessness always results in death. Let me say that again. Both in life, in nature, and in spiritual life, fruitlessness always ends in death. It is only by and through fruit-bearing where life is perpetuated. If you have a tree in your backyard that never produces anything, most likely you're going to pull the state chainsaw out and get rid of it. Let me show you a passage where we can prove that. Look at Matthew chapter 7 with me. Matthew chapter 7, we'll go to the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus is speaking very similar words that he's using here later in Mark chapter 11. This should, have been new, should not have been new to the disciples. They should have recognized and remembered this lesson. But nevertheless, let's look back and see what he's speaking about. The context is false teachers, false prophets. But nevertheless, they're unfruitful and thus they die. Notice what he says, verse 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Now there again, it looks right. From a distance, it looks right. It looks like a nice sheep. He's fuzzy and warm and looks good. Upon closer inspection, he's got teeth. Not like a lamb. In fact, he's ravenous. And so he says this, verse 16, you will know them by their fruit. 
What a statement. You will know people by their fruit. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistle, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit. It's a statement. It's not a suggestion. It's a fact. Every good tree bears good fruit. But bad trees bear bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, or can a bad tree produce good fruit? He's black and white, isn't he, in this text, isn't he? And every tree, verse 19, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown to the fire, so then you will know them by their fruit. The Bible teaches us that the transforming work of the Lord Jesus Christ in a believer's life does not leave you fruitless. If Christ has transformed your life, you will produce fruit. It is not of you, it is of Christ. It is where the roots of your tree are sunk down to. Whatever you sink those into, that's what it produces. You sink it into the world's philosophy, you will not produce godly fruit. You sink it into Christ, his word, his truth, you will produce it. See, people often say, hey, we've got to be careful of teaching works. No, we don't teach works. We teach the power of Christ. And you cannot say, oh, I am a, I'm a believer of the Lord Jesus, but there has never been any fruit on my life. It's a denial of the power and authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. He alone produces these things. As you turn back to your text, in both Matthew and Mark, the recordings, these recordings here, we understand that Peter's, he's not asking this just for himself. He, he's, he's still astonished. But we, we get the understanding that Peter is really asking how this happened. What, what, what took place here, Lord? And Jesus wants his disciples to understand the deadly problem of fruitless faith. There is fruitless faith. It's called dead faith. That's how James refers to it. It's not a living faith. It's not a God-given faith. It's a man-centered, man-mustered-up faith. And in the end, it's a tree that must be cut down and burned. So Jesus wants his disciples to know this deadly problem. This is a deadly problem. You're going to encounter this, apostles, in everywhere you go. And you need to know the difference between fruit I produce and the lack of it man produces. Just a warning here as you think about this. We must be careful that we're not trying to produce our own fruit of our self-righteousness. We can dress right. We can talk right. We can show up at the right time and yet have no fruit proving the fact that Jesus Christ is in us. Happens all the time. I've met too many people at the end of their lives walk away from Christ and said, I was never a believer. And when challenged about what the believer's role is like, they look at you like, I'm not doing that. That's not me. And in the end, you can only play the charade so long. And God exposes it. But I want you to understand, brothers and sisters, that the fruit in our life is what God does. It's what Christ has manifested in our life. Listen to Paul as he speaks to the current church. In 2 Corinthians 2.14, he says this. Listen to this. But thanks be to God, now listen, 
who always leads us in triumph in Christ. Paul said, I am so grateful for God because all of the triumphs, quote, fruit, all of the things that we've accomplished, they come in Christ, not in ourselves. Notice the rest of the verse goes on, and manifest through us. So, so Christ is triumphing in us, and he's manifesting, he's producing fruit within us. This is what he does. He goes on to say this. He manifests through us the sweet aroma. Oh man, when fruit is in season, you can smell it, don't you? We start to miss it in the winter because our fruit comes from chili or somewhere, you know. And they send it not ripe. But if you hang around fruit in some way, you know, an apple orchard or, or peaches or, or strawberries or something, when they are fruit, you can smell them. It's the same true with us. When Christ has triumphed over our sinful nature and our sinful desires and and our roots have been sunk deep down in him there's a blossoming that takes place and then there's then there's a product that comes from that and eventually something that smells and tastes like jesus christ that's what he's after here so if your roots are planted deep by god in christ and they're drinking that living water it will come he says, Scott, I want to be fruitful. I, I know many of you are probably saying, Scott, I want to be fruitful for Jesus. Plant your roots deep in the word and Christ. Battle, battle in your mind your self-righteousness. Battle sin that wants to take a hold and, and grab you and hold you in some area. Battle those things, brothers and sisters, because that won't produce fruit. That'll produce Leafy growth that doesn't have anything with it. Ask God to produce those. You know those great verses in Ephesians 2 where we're reminded that both our grace and faith that we receive comes from God. It's not of our own doing. It's not of our own works. Lest we would boast before God. But the very next verse says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus. That's where all of this comes from. For good works, which, think about this, God himself prepared in advance. That's what hangs on your tree. Think about that. God in his graciousness not only saves us, but he lets us put our roots deep down into his son, into the word of God, and we produce a, a kind of fruit that is satisfying to both us and those around us because it comes from God. That's what he's after. One more verse before I leave this point. Go to Hebrews chapter 13 with me. I want you to see this text. As the writer of Hebrews is closing out the book, he makes an amazing statement of the effect of the Lord Jesus Christ and how God is at work in us. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 20. I do not want you to walk away and say, oh, I gotta do more fruit. I, I, I just gotta be, I gotta get more fruit. I gotta get this done. I gotta muscle up. I gotta pull myself up my bootstraps. I don't want you to leave thinking that way. The goal of this text and the goal of what Jesus was doing with his disciples is to cause them to put their faith deeply in a God they could not see. That's where this will come from. Notice this text, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 20. Now the God of peace, we'll praise the Lord for that, 
who brought up, the, brought up from the dead the great shepherd of the sheep, that's Jesus, through the blood of the eternal covenant, that's his planned, uh, his planned covenant from the foundations of the world, even Jesus our Lord, that's who that's all about. Now look at verse 21, I love this. Equip you in every good thing to do his work. Oh my goodness. That's how it's done. He equips us. We put our roots down. We study God's word. We believe God's word. We pray. We forgive all of the context that's in our passage. And he equips us to do the good things to do his will. People ask me all the time, what's God's will? I just want to know what God's will is for my life. Well, let me start here. Obey the Bible. (laughs) That's where it all starts. I promise you'll never find God's will if you don't obey his Bible. You don't obey his word, this is where it all starts. And so he equips you through this. You study and, and rightly divide the word of God. He will show you this. Notice the rest of this text is not only will he equip you, notice it is working in us. You say, well, I want to be pleasing to God. Well, look what he does. He works in us that which is pleasing in his sight. Brothers and sisters, there's such a relief to this that I do not have to somehow muster up some kind of strength each and every morning to do acts that please God. I can submit to him, say, this is what you've asked me to do. This is how you've asked me to live your life because you deserve that, because you sent your son to die for me, and you will equip me, and you will work in me in such a way that pleases you. Oh, Lord, help me die to self. Help me die to self. See, self is the confusing problem. Oh boy, we better go to church because I want him to bless my business. I, I better do this and better do that. And I, and I have this list over here. Fruitless, fruitless, barren, cut the tree down. It is Jesus putting our faith in him, putting roots down deep. He teaches us and leads us and works in us, which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. And that means he doesn't change. And so you can go to the word of God. You can go to Christ time and time again. He's not going to change. If you want to bear fruit, you keep going back to this well. And he produces those things in your life. Go back to our text, verse 22. And Jesus said, Jesus answering, Peter's made this statement, look, Jesus, what you did. And Jesus answers them, saying to them, have faith in God. So here's his answer. Look, you're looking at this tree. You're, you're overwhelmed with what's going on here. Jesus begins to speak to all of them. Now notice Peter asked the question or made the great statement, the observation, Rabbi, look, the tree that you, which you cursed is withered. But Jesus is not just answering Peter. He's gonna answer the whole group. Notice, notice, the, um, notice the phrase here. And Jesus answered saying to them, to all the disciples, meaning that all of the disciples were surprised by this manifestation of the power and the condition of this tree. And you go, why are they surprised at this stuff? Has he not walked on water? Has he not broke bread and fed thousands? Has he not healed the blind and the sick? Has he not done those things? And yet, we, like them, read these truths and then walk out as though they have no effect on us at times. 
So don't judge the disciples. You and I err in this, don't we? How many of this room would give testimony that Jesus Christ is God? He has all authority, all power. He accomplished all that he desires to accomplish. Nothing can stop him or restrain him. You and I would all confess to that doctrinal statement, wouldn't we? Many of us. And yet we'll walk out and be fruitless all week. Because self is still magnified in our life. It's interesting, Jesus' response to this astonishment of his miracle. He doesn't say, yeah, yeah, I did that. Why aren't you paying attention? He doesn't say that. Notice what he says in the verse. He simply says, have faith in God. Why does he say that? Because that's the problem. That's the problem. Notice he's redirecting their attention to the source of the power. He's showing them, look, you've seen this. You've clearly recognized this. You're not seeing the source of the power. Believe in God. He's challenging them to have faith that rests in God. I'm not going to be here much longer, boys. (laughs) My whole goal was to come here and redirect you to my Father through my sacrificial death and all of my words to cause you to be dependent upon him, not upon yourself. Believe in God. I think this reply is a gentle rebuke of their lack of faith in the power of his word and the power of God. Temptation. Temptation to believe in self is such a powerful thing. Christ is soon leaving If you're going to walk this life believing in yourself, you're going to fail. John chapter 14, verse 1. In this same week, this Passion Week, John has a massive amount of his teaching during this week recorded in there. John 14, into 13, he says, look, I'm going to die. I'm going to the cross. I'm going to suffer at the hands of these evil men. And then I'm going to leave you. Chapter 14, he says, do not let your heart be troubled. See, all this is about preparation to have faith in God. And then he makes this great statement. Believe in God, believe also in me. See, your temptation, disciples, your temptation, Riverbend Community Church, is to put your beliefs in yourself. And every time you do that, doubt will follow, troubles will come. You will not be able to understand the future. You will not be able to to cope with life and things that are going on. Believe in God. That's his message. See, the tree was a vivid demonstration of his power and the source for their faith. Not their own personal faith, the source of that faith. The tree is an illustration. God, believe in God. God does these things. You're going to need that. They're going to try to kill you. They're going to put you in prison. They're going to behead some of you. They're going to hang some of you upside down. You must believe in God. That's his point. Where's your faith? Are you going to put it in yourselves? Are you going to put it in physical me who's not going to be here in a few days? Or do you believe in God? And I ask you that question today. Do you believe in God? Do you believe in the God of the scriptures? 
The sovereign God who owns and holds all things. And though our faith is weak when we take it upon ourselves, but by the faith of God, he has given us to put our faith in him. Do you believe in him? I think that's what he's challenging him to do here. He's leaving soon. Second thought. Does your prayer life reflect the promises and power of God? Does your prayer life reflect the promises and power of God? Look at verse 23. Truly I say to you, after making the statement to believe in God, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says is going to happen, it will be granted him. Now notice he starts a statement out with truly. If you have your own King James with you, it'll probably say truly, truly. Truly I say to you, it's Jesus' way of indicating a very, very, very important truth. It's like him highlighting this in the Bible. Trusting God was not some mere academic exercise. He did not want them to do that. The Pharisees were already doing that. They were fruitless trees. But it's very practical. It's very personal trusting God. And so the Lord's promises in this verse, they're broad and extraordinary, aren't they, what he says? And think about where they're out. Doubtlessly, they're coming around, possibly coming, they're coming from Bethany, which was on the other side of Mount of Olives. They're working their way around the side of the Mount of Olives, almost trying to get in sight of the, Jerus- of the city of Jerusalem. There is the Mount of Olives right there that Jesus Christ just in a couple of days is going to be praying on and be arrested on. And so maybe he's meaning this mountain, doubtlessly is. Doesn't it say that? Doesn't it use those kind of terms? That if you say to this mountain? So it's probably speaking of the Mountain of Olives. And this sea from there, I, I haven't been there, I long to go someday, but I am told from the Mount of Olives you can see two seas. You can see the Dead Sea and the Mediterranean Sea from there. So here's our Lord using very practical. This mountain can be thrown into those seas. That's what he's saying. It's an amazing statement. Both of these are right in view in front of them. Verse 23 is this, this figure of speech, this, this overstatement intended to teach a spiritual lesson here. The Lord's point is that when we are confronted, I'll think about this, confronted by overwhelming issues without apparent human reasoning, dead fig trees in one day, dead from the roots to the top, When you come upon things like this that you cannot give a human solution to, we are not to doubt in our hearts, but we are to believe and our request in prayer will be granted is what he's teaching here. And brothers and sisters, we go through this all the time. Things happen in our life. Sinful events cause consequences. Other things that go on in the world have consequences to us. Things we cannot resolve. What Jesus is teaching is when your faith is in me, I will grant your prayers. If your faith is in you, you will never see this granted. I remember studying this verse as a little boy and looking at Mount Diablo, which is in the Walnut Creek uh, Valley just outside the San Francisco Bay Area and going, move. Move. It's still there. Just saw it a little while ago. What was I doing? My faith was in whether I could believe enough. Do you see where our charismatic friends get off base? That's not the lesson. The lesson is the faith in God. 
when something that is way beyond what you can understand, what are you going to put your faith in? He's pushing them. Man, they are going to see incredible things. They're going to see people fall out of windows and die. (laughs) They're going to see sickness. They're going to see hatred like no man has ever seen but Jesus Christ, these apostles. They're going to see death of loved ones, death of fellow apostles. They're going to see all of that. And it's going to be very difficult to get their mind around that. But if their faith is in God, they will hold the line. They will produce fruit during drought. Because their roots are deep in Christ. And he is preparing for them. Notice the word doubt. The doubt to which Jesus is referring to is not doubt in God, but doubt in your own faith. Look, you, if, you, if you come to this and you, and, and you refer to your own faith, and th- that's what this doubt is about because faith in God's power is, can do anything. Let me take you one example before I go there. God's, Jesus says, you can cast this mountain into these seas. I got thinking about this this week. He already did that. God already did that. Where will we see that God have done that? How about Genesis 6? Have you ever read that text? The Bible says that he opened up the gates and the the depths of the ocean. And and it isn't hard to study creationism and realize he moved mountains around in water and and, uh, reformed land. And and then even if you go to creation itself, doesn't he form those things? He formed the dry land. He brought the dry land right out of the sea. See, he's not saying something that he hasn't done. The key is that our faith is in God, not in ourselves. Look at James chapter 1 with you. You've got to go there for a minute. James, remember, James is here at this lesson, and then he's going to write James 1. He's listening to all this. Peter's saying, hey, Lord, the tree you cursed. But James is right there. He's right there. Now look what he says about faith. James chapter 1, verse 6 through 8. Now, let's make sure we understand this in the context of what Jesus was saying. But he's asking about prayer and faith and all that as the context here, gaining wisdom and so forth. But he must ask, this person, he must ask in faith. Now, this is, again, where some of our friends can get sidetracked. In faith in who? In yourself? See, that's what they say. You didn't get healed that day because you did not have enough faith. That's not, that's not what it says. James in no way would teach you to have faith in yourself. He would no way, after walking with Jesus, would he ever say, you have to have more faith in yourself. You Ask your spouse. <laughs> Should I just have more faith? No, no. <laughs> You've made a mess. <laughs> have faith in God. So he says, he must ask in faith, that's in God, without doubting, without saying, God, I'm going to ask you, but I don't think you could do this. You don't know the Bible then. We ask in faith, in faith in God, without doubting. God, on my own, if you leave it to my own, there's no way this is going to happen. But my faith in myself is dead. It's not good. I'll, I'll fail. But I ask in my faith in you, the one who said, let the dry land come out of the seas. I ask in that faith. My faith is in you. For the one who doubts, look at this, is like surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. And that's because your faith is in self. 
when we talk about, when we're in DTP1 and we talk about progressive sanctification, those who have taken that and those of you who have not, we encourage you to, but we really help us understand the process that God takes us through from growing. And we draw a graph on the board that kind of looks like this. Each one of those downturns and those swales we get in where we're going through struggles is honestly, when you study this text, is when I put faith in myself. You go back and mark your struggles in life and see if God failed you or you failed to trust him. I, I can give you the answer if you want to know. And, and, and when that turn comes by the grace of God and we repent of that sin and repent of that lack of trusting in him and we begin to grow, it's because at that point, somewhere along the line, you say, God, I can't do this on my own. I put my faith in you to do the things that I can't accomplish. And you grow. And he conforms you more like his son. And that's what, that's what we look like, right? That's what happens in our lives. And so we're not, notice James says, we're not like this doubting person who is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the winds. For that man ought not to expect that he would receive anything from the Lord because he's double-minded and unstable in all of his ways. He's actually proving he is a fruitless man. Double-minded. Anybody like a double tongue? The Native Americans called it a forked tongue. Oh, you speak with a forked tongue. You say one thing, do another. Mm, Christians speak with forked tongues sometimes. Come to church, say all the, sing all the great songs, sing all the great theology, listen to the sermons, and then we go home and we speak with another tongue. And you say, why doesn't God answer my prayers? Because our faith is in ourselves. See, our self-willed faith exposes our weakness. I remember my early days of cowboying, had a calling to be in ministry, and I was still staring at the south end of northbound cattle, trying to figure out why God would leave me there. And I remember crying out one day, eight, 9,000 feet up in the Warner Mountains, pushing cattle up into the high country, going, God, when is this going to happen? When are you going to fulfill what you've called me to do? And remember my heart of hearts, God speaking to me, have faith in me. And that gentle but yet strong rebuke, I'll never forget that. It was a change in my life at that time because I'd realized that I had tried to faith my way to my calling and I was not believing in the God who knew me and knew all the things that he had in store for me. I was trying to muscle up, solo bootstrap this myself to my calling versus trusting God. And each and every time where I found where I failed God throughout my lifetime, which is many times, is I go back and I realize that there I did not believe God in that situation. Now that does not mean I lost my salvation because I cannot lose what I did not gain. But it does mean, mean that I broke fellowship and I sorrowed at times and I, and I struggled and I probably led my family poorly and all of those things because there was a lack of trust and belief in God. That's what this whole lesson's about. Believe in God. I think Peter understood this. You guys know this story. He steps out of the boat. His eyes are squarely fixed on the Lord Jesus and he walks across water. <laughs> Can you kind of see the replay on this? He's doing great, isn't he? Till what happens? 
He looks at his circumstances, doesn't he? And all of a sudden, now his view of what's going on is all based in his own power. All the things that are going to happen to him. He's now forgot the God who's standing in front of him, who created the water. And he's now consumed with his own problems. And he does what? Sinks like a rock. And there's our gracious Lord bringing him out. Remember also the man in Mark 9.22. He has a very sick son who's indwelled by demons Jesus asked him do you believe you know what his comment was Lord what help my unbelief that is faith in God right see I'm trying to give you an answer because you and I are going yeah Scott's right there's a lot of times I don't trust God but there's times where you and I have to say God help my unbelief that alone that statement right there says God I can't do this on my own I am putting my faith in you and you know what happened in Mark 9, Jesus healed that boy. There's not power in ourselves. So our faith is mixed with doubt at times. We live in a fallen condition. The disciples had struggles. Peter's going to show that he doesn't trust God because he's going to pull his sword out two nights later and try to chop off this. Or he tried to kill the guy, but missed and caught his ear. They're, they're, they're weak, and we are weak. But we call on the power of God, something greater than us, something that is greater that is within us than that is what's in the world. And that prayer of faith, that confidence in God, draws down to heaven's power to help you get through what you're going through. Does that make sense? It draws down heaven's power to help you trust Christ is exposing this to us. He's exposing his disciples that faith gives way to the power of God and emboldens you and strengthens you and helps you beat self-desires. This was so true as, as I was counseling Kyle Davis, and he's in the Bahamas on his way back right now, but one of the things I saw in Kyle's life is when Lisa died, all he wanted to know was what was going on with Lisa and why did God let this happen? So what did he do? He went to the Bible. He just said, I'm going to find out what God did and why he did it. And I'm going to know, and I'm going to want to know what Lisa's doing and all this stuff. And he was very self-centered. And Kyle will tell you this. Problem is, he started studying the Bible. And he started reading about his great God. And when you speak to Kyle now, he'll tell you about the greatness of God. And he's okay with whatever he did with Lisa. Because that's what happens, because your faith is strengthened because you believe in this God who does what you could not do. And you accept, you accept his perfect choices in your life. That's beautiful, isn't it? Because I can't deal with some of the things that go on in my life on my own. I can't deal with it. But in God, I can. And these disciples were going to face some of the most difficult things. They're the first Christians they're leading the way, and he's preparing them. Boys, if you don't have faith in me, you're going to drown. And Peter goes, yeah, I remember that. And so he writes the book of First Peter. Look at verse 24, i got to move. Therefore I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them, and they will be granted. The practical component of prayer is obvious yet necessary. In order to receive all things that God promised through prayer, one must first ask for them for the glory of God, not for the glory of ourselves. James addresses this as well. Just listen for the sake of time. James 4, 2 and 3. You lust and you do not have. 
so you commit murder. You are envious and you cannot obtain. Notice the cannot here. So you fight and quarrel and you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your own pleasure. James is pulling the covers off, isn't he? James is there. He's watching this happen. He was a lesson he never forgot. He said, I need to put my faith in God and I need to pray in faith in him, not in me. And I need to pray for his glory, his will, not my own. Much of this comes right out of Matthew, uh, Jesus' uh, teaching on the mountain, Matthew chapter 7. Jesus said, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. What are you after? The things of God, not the things of you. For everyone who asks receives and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks it will be opened. These are people who come to him with God's glory in mind, with God's will. Or what man is among you who when his son asks for a loaf, you give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, you give him a snake? <laughs> if then, being evil, how do you give good gifts to your children? How much more will your Father who is in heaven give what is good to those who ask? We ask with motives for his will. So verse 24 is not this blank statement as you look at this as so many people have in Christendom they go well look I asked he didn't give me he didn't grant it James gives a little further and and that you ask with wrong motive so this type of prayer leans on the promises of God and the power of God and we request listen to this we request with the consistency of God's will what's your will God like Jesus our our great shepherd of our souls uh, the great example Lord your will be done not mine could we pray that way? Knowing, listen to this, knowing that God changes our prayer life from greed to glory. I want you to understand that. He changes our prayer life. As we grow in Christ, he changes our prayer life from greed to glory. Doesn't mean you don't ask for something. It may be something. Maybe you're asking for health of a spouse or somebody dear to you, and you need God to do something that you can't do, the doctors can't do, nobody else. But you ask for his glory. That's consistent with his will versus greed. And I think that's with a mark of a growing Christian. We change from this, this asking in greed to asking for his glory. Very different. Third, does your faith in God promote prayer and forgiveness? Look at verse 25. Whenever you stand praying, forgive. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father who is in heaven will also forgive you, so that your Father who is in heaven will also forgive your transgressions. This is basically a verse repeated out of, again, Jesus spoke about prayer so much on the Sermon on the Mount. It's, it's a verse almost right out of this. Matthew chapter 6, 14 through 15, for if you pray, if you, excuse me, if you, if you, for if you will forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. It's quite a statement. And here, Jesus is repeating this. They've heard this before. Uh, verse 26 in your text, you, if you look at your Bible, there's a bracket around it. It's because that verse is not in the, the best of our manuscripts that we translate English from in our English Bibles is most likely a scribal insertion. Insertion. It's a very true statement because it's Jesus has already said this. But that's why we're just dealing with 25. So the Lord commands us to forgive if you have anything against anyone. 
So this is expresses the, the moral result of our own forgiveness. The result of our own forgiveness is that we forgive. In other words, forgiveness of others is required of believers, thus displaying that they themselves have been forgiven. So you're gonna go, Scott, let's get back to this fruitless tree. One of the reasons it's fruitless is because people don't forgive. Can you, and Jesus does, you know, he does these parables of a man who was forgiven of all this debt. And he goes, oh, thank you, thank you, thank you. He goes out and grabs the guy. <laughs> you're gonna pay me or you're going to jail. Fruitless tree getting cut down, thrown into the fire. That's what Jesus says. So we forgive because we have been forgiven. And these are hard things, aren't they? They're, they're hard. Maybe, maybe you're in here and you go, Scott, you don't know what's been done to me. Well, I know what they did to Christ. And he said, Father, forgive them. I, I know every one of us have somebody in our life that's hard to forgive. It's difficult. It hurts. It's like you don't understand. But yet, this is what Jesus is saying. You forgive or I don't. And you say, well, that's kind of like works. No, it isn't. It's the result. If you want to say, hey, I'm a believer, but I live in constant unforgiveness where when brought up it draws out anger it draws out frustration if you live that way friend i would i would really ask you consider if you're in the faith there has to be a point where you and i come to i forgive and it isn't your kind of forgiveness people say well i forgive it in my own way no 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 that doesn't work it's god's way god says i forgive i I cast in the deepest seas. You know, we don't maybe have the ability to do that. But we choose, we strive to forgive as God has forgiven. So this forgiveness that, uh, that is talked about here, it's not the forgiveness of salvation, it's the result of salvation. This is the relational forgiveness. We often sin against each other, friends, don't we? And we disrupt the enjoyment of the fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And so in John 13, same, some, maybe this night he might have done that. Um, or or then two nights after this, probably on, on Friday, excuse me, on Friday night before his death, he brings the disciples in, in chapter 13, and he washes their feet. And Peter says, you can't do it. He goes, look, I need to do this. And, and he gives an understanding that you're going to walk in this world and you're going to pick up things, unforgiveness. And so we daily wash our feet in the truth of Christ, And so he gives that illustration to understand that, yes, there are daily struggles we go through, but we are to forgive. So it's all part of this. You want a fruitless tree? You want a tree that's going to be cut down someday? Don't forgive. It proves you aren't in the faith. But when God strengthens you to forgive, we do that. Apostles picked up on this. You know they taught about this. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32. Love this verse. Be kind to one another. Woo. Tenderhearted, ugh. forgiving each other, ugh. and then this statement. Here's the dagger: Just as God in Christ also forgave you. Whew. Oh Lord, help me. See, see, this is we're right back to faith in God because you have a situation in your life. I may have a situation in my life that's going to be I cannot forgive on my own, God. I've climbed that ladder too many times. I have pulled my boots up so many times. I cannot do it. My faith is in you to empower me by your strength to forgive where forgiveness is needed. How would you be 
one of the apostles and watch your dear brother James' head removed from him and keep going? How would you be his wife? How would you be his child? What would it have been like for Peter's wife to see him hung on a cross upside down? If we don't forgive, it's a mark of, of worldliness. It's a mark that is, and sometimes the world does better than that. See, he's talking about that's a fruitless tree. He's turned away from this image of the tree and he's talking to them. You want to know what kills that? Lack of faith in God. Lack of prayer, not coming to me in unforgiveness. So don't be like this dead tree, deceptive, fruitless, unforgiving, and now dead. When our tree is inspected, one fruit that should be on it, one fruit, brothers and sisters, that should be on that tree is forgiveness. Because you are forgiven. Well, who do you need to forgive in here? Who's in your life that you need to go to forgive? It's not easy. You may have to get some help to do it because sometimes there's difficulties, but, but you, who is it? And will you go to God to help you do that? Put your faith in the power of God. Put your faith in the power of God to do these difficult things. Do life His way. Submit to Him. Forgive when you've been forgiven. And you'll have great joy. And people around you will want to know what's hanging on your tree. Last thought. I want to tie this to the birth of Christ. Because as we work our way now, and I'm going to move to Advent teaching from here till Christmas. But number four, the birth of Christ and our prayer life, our faith, our prayer life, and forgiveness. It's so wrapped up in this. Let me close with one verse. Go to Matthew chapter 1. The angels come to speak to Joseph. He is pondering how to put away this woman he loves. He knows in the law, if he puts her away according to the law, she could be stoned to death, at worst, left in prostitution. He's loved her, he's cared for her, and now he finds that she's pregnant outside of wedlock and he knows it's not him. And so the angel comes and speaks to Joseph. He, I love the scene there, he's tired. And you could, you know, go into a stressful thing like that. You ever been so stressful over an issue in your life that you can't resolve and you're wrestling with God and you're talking with him and then you finally just drift off to sleep? This is what I think happened to Joseph. And in this sleep, an angel appears to Joseph and he begins to tell him, hey, <laughs> that kid, it's my work, not yours. You marry her because he's a special Messiah. Verse 21, the angel says, she will bear a son and you shall call, him, call his name Jesus. And look at this phrase, for he will save his people from their sins. He will save his people from their sins. That means he will what? Forgive them. And notice the terms here. There's beautiful terms in here just quickly. He'll save his people. A lot of people say, well, isn't that the nation of Israel? Well, it certainly is. It isn't every Jew that's ever been born. There's a remnant that God is going to save. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10 says he's going to save, rescue those who will look upon him whom they pierced. But we are his people as well. We're the, we're the sheep of his pasture. We are his people. Peter grabs this and says, look, you, you once were not a people, but now you are. You did not receive mercy, but now you have received mercy. Paul says, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. 
Forgiveness is the key to God's people. And at his birth, at his announcement, that's what this is all about. God is going to forgive. He's going to forgive. So because of Christ's birth, we have faith in God. As you go into this season, as you think about the birth of Christ, if he does not come, you could not faith your way to God if you tried the rest of your days. The birth of Christ is going to bring faith to us. Faith in God, the birth of Christ is going to bring communion with God. You're going to be able to pray to God. You're going to be able to talk to him. You don't need a priest. You don't need anybody to go through to intercede for you. Christ himself will intercede for you. So the birth of Christ prepares our prayer life. So you and I can talk to him about these difficult issues. Because of the birth of Christ, we can forgive. Because we were forgiven. And Jesus is that picture and that manger of one who is going to forgive us of our sins and allow us to forgive. So the lessons of the dead tree are seen in the cradle and the cross, both made of dead wood. But a living Savior in both of them make us alive. Amen? Father, this is good. We need this help, Lord. Our tendency is to have faith on our own. We try to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and it just doesn't work. And if we do that for our entire life, we're like this dead tree. It's fruitless. It's unproductive. It needs to be cut down and thrown in the fire. Lord, we do not want that. And so, Lord, if you have saved us, and speaking to all of us in this room, myself included, we pray that you would strengthen us to have faith in you. We would ask that you would give us strength to believe. We would be like that son's father. Lord, help my unbelief. I cannot do this on my own. And that would open up a line of prayer and our request would be granted by you. We would forgive when we need to. We would not hold things against one another. And Lord, we would, we would resemble more like your son. So Lord, we ask today that we would not be like this withered tree. But we would be a tree in full season with its roots deep down by the river of living water that Jesus himself through the word and be very productive and very fruitful. Help us, Lord, in our unbelief. In Jesus' name, amen.